0: Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to be reading the whole passage, the whole chapter. The apostle writes, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law... Requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to, take, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth through the priesthood in Israel, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, For on the basis of it, the law was given to the people. Why then was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there must also be a change in the law. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced, by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely Those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all, when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath, which came after the law, appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Christian doctrine of the atonement, which is the doctrine that we are looking at today through the Belgic Confession, is probably the central and defining doctrine of the Christian faith. We've already looked at a number of doctrines in this series on the Belgic Confession that are important to Christianity the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of creation the incarnation, the two natures of Christ, but the doctrine of the atonement, the idea that Jesus reconciles sinful humans to a holy God, is the very heart of the gospel. So central is the doctrine of the atonement to Christianity that the great creeds of the Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, spend most of their words talking about Jesus' work. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's about half of the Apostles' Creed. Right there. Half of the Apostles' Creed is about Jesus. About the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and future return of our Lord. The doctrine of atonement is the understanding that the whole reason that the Son of God came to earth was to reconcile humanity to God. Which is quite a feat because humanity is sinful And God is holy. And as we know from countless examples from Scripture, holiness cannot abide the presence of sinfulness. When sinfulness comes into the presence of holiness, it's destroyed. The same way that when sickness comes into the presence of health, it is destroyed. Sickness cannot exist in a healthy body. A healthy body destroys sickness the same way that a holy God destroys sin. And so for Jesus to be able to reconcile humanity to God without killing us, he needs to destroy sin in us and make us holy. And the doctrine of the atonement describes how Jesus does this. How Jesus makes us right with God. Even the word atonement points to this reality. Atonement is quite literally at one meant. That's the root of the word, at-one with God. Jesus comes to earth and through his work makes us one with God. Jesus brings humanity and God together, reconciled, united. At its heart, the doctrine of the atonement is the doctrine of salvation. How are we saved? How are we made right with God? How are we cleansed from our sins and reconciled to our maker? And to Guido de Bray, the author of the Belgian Confession, this is an important doctrine to get right. The doctrine of the atonement gets a lot of attention during the Reformation, because there is a lot of misunderstanding about how people are saved. The Roman Roman Catholic Church never officially taught anything aside from the fact that we are saved through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. But in practice, in medieval Europe, a lot of people were under the impression that the work of Jesus was just the beginning of salvation. Not the totality of salvation. Most people in medieval Europe believed that, that the work of Jesus was important, but it wasn't a sure thing. It wasn't the end of our worry about not being saved. To be sure, to be sure that you were saved, you had to rely on the work of your local pastor, who kind of helped Jesus work along by re-sacrificing the body and blood of Christ in Sunday service every week, who heard the confession of sin of the people every week and gave them good works that they could do to pay off the sins that they had committed in the past week. To be sure that you were saved, most medieval Christians believed that the work that the priest did week after week, was just as important, if not more important, than the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And again, I want to be clear that this was never the official teaching of the Catholic Church, but there were plenty of local pastors who found it quite flattering that their people thought so highly of the work that they did every week and allowed these misunderstandings to grow so that they would have more respect. And, you know, I can see the temptation in that. But for Guido de Bray and for other reformers, what is at stake in the doctrine of the atonement is salvation itself. Jesus is the only one who saves us from our sins. Jesus is the only one who makes us right with God. Jesus is the only one who can unite us to God. There is no other power on earth or in heaven that can do this in his place. And to believe otherwise, the reformers say, is nothing more than idolatry, putting something else in the place of God. And so Guido de Bray, in Article 21 of the Belgic Confession, is trying to explain to us the very heart of the gospel, that blessed word that we so long to hear week after week people of God in Jesus Christ all of our sins are forgiven and so in explaining this crucial central all important doctrine of the Christian faith Debray begins of course where we all expect him to begin we believe that Jesus Christ is a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek wait what? Where does, where does this come from? Guido de Bray drops this name at the beginning of this article about the central teaching of the Christian faith seemingly out of nowhere. Like, like we all know what he's talking about. Like we're all supposed to be like, oh yeah, of course, the order of Melchizedek, that, that priestly order of Melchizedek. Yeah, that's that one. That's, yeah, yeah. We, we all know what that means. But, you know, it seems like Guido de Bray drops it out of nowhere. But Guido de Bray is following the Bible, which also kind of drops Melchizedek out of nowhere. In this obscure story full of weird names and places and people in Genesis 14, Melchizedek just kind of pops up seemingly out of nowhere. Four kings join forces to go to war against five kings and the four kings win the war. And as a consequence of that war, Abraham's nephew Lot is captured and taken away as a prisoner of war. And so Abraham, to defend his family's honor, gathers up all the trained men in his household, 318 The text tells us, which gives you an idea of how wealthy of a man Abraham is, that he owns 318 men who are trained for war. And Abraham goes with his own little private army to fight against these five kings and their armies. And Abraham wins. And on his way home, Abraham stops to meet with the king of Sodom, one of the kings who was in battle against these four kings, in the valley of Shaveth, a valley outside the city of Salem, which is a city that will eventually become the city of Jerusalem. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, a priest of the Most High God, brings Abraham bread and wine and blesses him. And Abraham gives him a tenth, gives him a tithe of everything. And then we never hear about him again. Who is this guy? Melchizedek. The passage in Hebrews tells us some helpful information. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness, He's called the king of Salem, and Salem means peace, so he's the king of peace, king of righteousness, king of peace. He's a priest of El Elyon, a priest of God Most High. He offers Abraham bread and wine, he blesses him, and Abraham gives him a tithe. There's some really fascinating historical debate about who this guy is, who is Melchizedek. According to a Jewish tradition that arose around the time of Jesus, Melchizedek is another name for Shem, the son of Noah. And that might seem ridiculous because Shem is like Abraham's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. But This is awesome. (laughs) Genesis 9 tells us that Shem lived for 500 years after the flood. And if we take the numbers of the genealogies in Genesis literally, Shem lives not only to the time of Abraham, but through the time of Isaac and even the time of Jacob. If we take the numbers in the genealogies of Genesis literally, Shem, the son of Noah, dies when Jacob is 50 years old. That's fascinating. So that's one theory. But there's not many Christians throughout history that have picked up on that theory. So we'll leave it alone. The more interesting debate is this long-standing debate within Christianity about the identity of this mysterious figure. Because for Christians, the debate is not about trying to figure out which Old Testament character is disguised as Melchizedek. For Christians, the debate is about whether Melchizedek is Jesus. And this might seem kind of ridiculous to us too. But look at the story. Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. He's the prince of peace. Melchizedek is a priest of God, of a higher order than the Jewish priesthood. A new priesthood, a new temple, a new covenant. Melchizedek nourishes and sustains God's covenant people with bread and wine. Melchizedek blesses God's people. Melchizedek receives the tithes and offerings of God's people. Melchizedek comes into the story out of nowhere, seemingly dropping out of heaven, and we can almost imagine Abraham asking Melchizedek, who are you? And Melchizedek responding, I am who I am. For a lot of Christians throughout history, the accumulated evidence of this story is obvious to them. Melchizedek is a pre-incarnation revelation of Jesus. In this passage, Abraham meets the Messiah, who will eventually die for his sins, and not only for his, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, the letter to the Hebrews in our text for this evening does not go that far. Our letter, the the Hebrews chapter 7, does not say that Melchizedek is Jesus. So I don't want to, I don't want any of you to go home thinking that, you know, Pastor John thinks that Melchizedek is Jesus. But the apostle who writes this letter does use Melchizedek as a symbol, as a shadow, as a sign that points to Jesus. This passage in Hebrews draws on imagery and language from Genesis 14 and from Psalm 110, the psalm that we sang before we turned to the word this evening, where God swears an irrevocable oath. I have made you a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The apostle argues that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and thus greater than Levi, Abraham's great-grandson who becomes the father of all the priests. So Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the priesthood that God established at Sinai, greater than the priesthood that offers sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem, greater than the priesthood that carries out the religious ceremonial demands of the law of Moses, greater than the priesthood of priests who are themselves tainted by the curse of sin, by the curse of death. The priesthood of Melchizedek is not established by the law, but by the promises of God, by the oath of God. And that makes it greater than the law of Moses. The point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to make in this passage is that Jesus is a greater order of priest than the priests that serve in the temple in Jerusalem. He serves a greater, more ancient covenant than the covenant at Sinai. He is the high priest of all creation, without beginning, without end, who offers himself in our place, who pays the debt that we were meant to pay, who dies the death that we were meant to die, and defeats death forever. Jesus is our savior. Jesus is our king of righteousness. Jesus is our prince of peace who comes to make all things new in the kingdom of God. Um, Adrian, do we have that picture? There's a picture that I want to show you guys. um, If if it worked. I hope it worked. We'll see. Um, And I want to end our meditation this evening by reflecting on this picture. It's an old tapestry that was used by a banner in an old church, and if it doesn't come up, then we'll just, oh, there it is, good, uh, and it explains through image what I can only hope to express in words. Okay, so this was brought uh, to me by uh, Lester Ruth, who is a professor of worship at uh, Duke Divinity School in the United States, and uh, Lester Ruth was at the worship symposium uh, this past weekend, which uh, the three pastors from this church were uh, blessed and privileged to be able to go to. And the, the, Oh, man, the Worship Symposium is this incredible, uh, incredible conference uh, where people from all over the world gather together to talk about worship practices, worship, like everything to do with worship. Um, and so I actually did not attend Lester Ruth's uh, talk this year, but Pastor Amanda did, and she brought it to my attention, and I thought, oh, man, I have to use that in the sermon this evening. So this this is a tapestry that was hung in an old church, kind of like our banners. Um, and uh, it depicts three uh, kind of figures gathered around a table that is laid with bread and wine. Um, and so we're going to do a little audience participation here. Um, and you guys are going to tell me, uh, who do you think this one on the uh, left is? It's a man wearing kind of... Caveman clothes offering a lamb. Any guesses? David. David? It's not, but that's a good guess. Think Think like cavemanier than David. Abel. Abel, this is Abel offering his lamb. This figure on the right, any guesses about who this is? This is Abraham offering his son Isaac. And who do you think this is in the middle? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Yeah, that's a great guess. You know, uh, in, in Lester Ruth's presentation, everybody was like, oh, that's Jesus. And he was like, no, no, that's Melchizedek. That's Melchizedek offering bread and wine. And so Lester Ruth's question to the people gathered was, where in this picture is Jesus? bread and the wine, Jesus' body and blood offered to us, the lamb, the sacrificial lamb led to slaughter whose blood purifies us from all our sins, the only son, the only only begotten son of the father who comes to die for the sins of the world. I think the better question is where isn't Jesus in this picture? Where isn't he? Jesus is the sacrificial lamb by whose blood we are made clean. Jesus is the only begotten Son who comes to die. Jesus is the founder of a new covenant who God calls to establish a people called by his own name Jesus is Abel whose innocent blood cries out from the ground for God to do justice on the earth Jesus is the bread and the wine offered to us to sustain us through this life Jesus is Melchizedek the king of righteousness the prince of peace who comes out to meet God's people as we struggle in battle against the forces of evil in this world with offerings of bread and wine to refresh us and sustain us on our way. Jesus is our Savior. He is our King. He is our God. This is what the letter of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, invites us to do. The letter to the Hebrews and much of the New Testament invites us to open up our imaginations, to see the whole Old Testament in a different way not just as this collection of odd stories with people with weird names and places that we can't pronounce but to see everything in the old testament as a shadow of what is to come as a shadow of Jesus that's that's exciting And I hope it's exciting to you. Jesus invites us to see himself in these stories. And because we are united to him by his sacrifice, which makes us holy, these stories are ours as the people of God. And so we join together with the saints and the angels and with all of creation, as we praise His holy name. To Him be the glory forever and ever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said.